0: Do not me, oh my darling. do not
1: If you're anything like us and the fact you're listening to a podcast about the Oscars makes me think you are. Watching the Oscars on TV every year is a tradition, but it wasn't always meant for public consumption, and the fact it became television entertainment had little to do with wanting to engage audiences at home. In fact, it came down to what almost everything always does, money. When three of the major studios refused to provide their customary financial support for the bi-coastal affair. The RCA Victor Division of the Radio Corporation of America agreed to pay AMPAS $100,000 as a sponsorship fee, and NBC telecast the ceremony over its 64 station television network and on its 174 station radio system. And so, what was once just a private industry event was viewed by a reported audience of 40 million people across America, Canada, and Mexico. And while the ceremony has failed to reach that large an audience for many years, it still marks the beginning of a tradition for many, especially
0: here.
1: Hello and welcome to For Your Reconsideration, the podcast where we reconsider best picture races and decide if the Academy got it right. I'm Devin. And I'm Kyle. And today we are talking about the 1953 Oscars honoring the best in film from 1952. Uh, So let's get into what was going on in context of 1952 when these movies came out, shall we?
2: This is the 25th Oscars, right?
1: Yes. Okay. Okay. All right. So that year, the president was Harry S. Truman. Some ongoing things that were happening: um, nearly 58,000 cases of polio were reported in the United States. 145, three hundred one hundred forty-five, three thousand one hundred forty-five people died, and twenty-one thousand two hundred sixty-nine were left with mild to uh, di- mild to disabling paralysis. I said that with a smile and I don't know why and I'm sorry.
2: Yeah, this is weird. What are you
0: <laughs> staring so pol- at? Me polio was happening. Yeah.
1: Okay. On January 14th of that year, The Today Show premiered on NBC, becoming one of the longest-running television series in America. On February 6th, the United States in the United States, a mechanical heart was used for the first time in a human patient. On June 19th, the United States Army Special Forces was created. On July 25th, Puerto Rico became a self-governing commonwealth of the United States. On October 16th, Limelight opened its doors in London. Writer, actor, director, producer Charlie Chaplin arrived by Ocean Liner, and in transit, his re-entry permit to the USA was revoked by J. Edgar Hoover, which I think we talked about in a previous uh, episode that Charlie Chaplin was exiled out of America for many years. So this was the beginning of that. Um, on December first, the New York Daily News carried a front page story announcing that Christine Jorgensen, a transgender woman in Denmark, had become the recipient of the first successful sexual reassignment operation. Wow, in 1952. Yeah, that uh, that documentary I watched. What's it called? No, I don't remember that a documentary about transgender representation in media. I talked about her. It was really interesting. What was, I don't remember what that was called now. People know what I'm talking right. about. It's good. All right, you want to talk about what's happening in film that year? Yeah. All right. On September 30th, the Cinerama multiple projection widescreen system, invented by Fred Waller, debuted in New York with the film "This Is Cinerama." So, but that was <laughs> 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 weirdly that like, not nominated for any Oscars. Is that
2: <laughs> is that longer than our like IMAX intro? What do you mean? Like when there's just like the IMAX, we're going through space. there's so oh, yeah. A countdown, or was it like this? Because that, that feels what it, what it is. It's just like this is Cinerama. It's the thing that plays before a cinema. Right. Like movie.
1: this can this will show you what it we can do. Yeah. I don't know. I do know that on November twenty seventh. <laughs> Buona Devil, the first American feature length color 3D film was released and began the demand for 3D films that lasted for the next two years. <laughs> and then it and then came back around yeah. later. Uh, yeah, it came back in like
2: the 80s <laughs> again. And then yeah, now. yeah,
1: The technology I think now? has improved each time. Too.
2: Sure. But is it even happening anymore? I mean, obviously we haven't been in a theater in a while, but.
1: Yeah. I don't. I mean. I don't know. Yeah. All right, you want to know what the highest grossing films of 1952
2: were? Do I have a choice?
1: You do not. <clears> At <throat> number 10, we have a tie with Comeback Little Sheba and The Stooge. Number nine, we have Oscar nominee The Quiet Man. Number eight, Jumping Jacks. Number seven, Oscar nominee Moulin Rouge. Number six, Sailor Beware. That sounds fun. Number five, Oscar nominee, Ivanhoe. Number four, Hans Christian Andersen. Uh, number three, <laughs> The Snows of Kilimanjaro. Number two, This Is Cinerama. Wow. So it was a big trot. And oh, uh, crap. Number one, Oscar winner, The Greatest Show on Earth.
2: Yeah. It was a tentpole movie. <laughs>
1: All right, well, I got lots of <laughs> lots of fun facts about this Oscar ceremony as well.
0: Ooh,
2: the first televised, you said, right? Yes,
1: like I said, it was the first one to be televised. And it was the first ceremony that was held in Hollywood and New York, which was also a big reason why it was televised because it was in two different
2: oh, locations. Oh, and then this year it's going to be in hundreds of locations. So, they're really <laughs> Probably, yeah, yeah they're really expanding.
1: For people, I don't know when this is actually going to be airing, but right now we are still in the midst of a pandemic, so I
2: this will be airing while there's still a pandemic.
1: I don't know. We don't know.
2: Okay, it's not going away anytime soon. So hopefully, we're we but the real question is,
1: how quickly will we finish this season? Is the that's, real that's true, unknown. That's true. <laughs> All right. So, the Bad and the Beautiful won five awards, and that's the most wins ever for a film not nominated for Best Picture. It was also the second Academy Awards in which a film not nominated for Best Picture received the most awards of the evening, excluding years where there were ties for the most wins. The only other film to do this was The Thief of Baghdad at the 13th Academy Awards. As of the 91st Academy Awards, it has not happened since. Until Spotlight won only Best Picture and Best Original Screenplay at the 88th Academy Awards. This was the last year in which the Best Picture winner won just two Oscars. Um, John Ford's fourth win for Best Director set a record for the most wins in this category that remains unmatched to this day. For the first time since the introduction of Supporting Actor and Actress Awards in 1936, Best Picture, Best Director, and all four acting Oscars went to six different films. This has happened only three times since in the 29th Academy Awards for 1956 and the 78th for 2005 and the 85th for 2012. The show was broadcast from 10.30 p.m. to 12.15 a.m., switching back and forth from host bob hope on the west coast to conrad Nagel on the east coast and the late start was made to accommodate those nominees who were performing that night on the broadway stage
2: whoa that's interesting isn't that crazy yeah so i'm
1: like they put it on tv but then they put it on so late that no one would watch i mean 40 million people watched but <laughs> yeah what are you talking about i guess about? they stayed up but it i'm like that's sense, crazy. actually <laughs> yeah imagine how many more people have watched if they put it on in prime time
2: sure I mean, don't we still get about forty million viewers? So <laughs> no, we get like many. twenty million viewers. Oh now. seriously? Yeah. Boo.
1: <laughs> I think the last like three have had like twenty. I think it was like twenty nine million. That's you know what? That's still two thousand nineteen and That's then like twenty six million. Let's be real. Well, yeah, and I mean, at this point in nineteen, you know, fifty three, there were only like three television stations, so there wasn't like a lot of options on what to watch. Like, if you're watching TV that night, you watch the Oscars. You know, yeah. now we have like a million stations and streaming channels and there's a lot more competition so like in all television like ratings like nothing is ever going to match the kind of ratings things got pre cable you know what i mean yeah so
2: yeah for sure
1: we don't have those kind of event moments anymore on that scale sure all right enough about tv thank god let's talk about these oscar nominated movies Woo Woo! First up.
2: Oh, we're there already.
1: Yeah, we're doing it. This is happening. This okay. is the podcast.
2: Moulin Rouge. Not to be confused with Moulin Rouge. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this one doesn't have an explanation. Yeah. Directed by John Houston, written by Anthony Villiers and John Houston, based on the novel by Pierre Lemur. Wild, wicked, wonderful Paris, all her loves, ladies and lusty legends. Moulin Rouge is the fictional account of French artist Henri de la Toulouse-Lautrec. De t- wait, did I screw that up? Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec. Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec.
1: Henri right. de Toulouse-Lautrec. Henri. Right. Right. You get it. <laughs>
2: Shorten to the point. That's what the movie's about.
1: That is a to-the-point synopsis. And
2: some scenes take place at the Moulin Rouge.
1: V- minimal, considering it's the title of the <laughs> film. <laughs>
2: I mean, they, yeah, that's, that's, that's an accurate description. Uh, right. Devin, do you have any facts about this movie? I, or is that later? Or? No,
1: this is now. I have I forget
2: it. how this happens.
1: I know. It's been a while since we've recorded.
0: Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> All right. To transform Jose Ferrer into Henri required the use of platforms and concealed pits, as well as special camera angles, makeup, and costumes. Short body doubles were also used. In addition, Ferrer used a set of knee pads of his own design, allowing him to walk on his knees. He received high praise not only for his performance, but for his willingness to have his legs strapped in such a manner as simply to play a role. It was reported that John Huston asked cinematographer Oswald Morris to render the color scheme of the film to look as if Toulouse-Lautrec had painted it, had directed it, sorry. Huston asked Technicolor for a subdued palette rather than the sometimes gaudy colors glorious Technicolor was famous for, and Technicolor was reportedly reluctant to do this. Really? Which I get. I mean, their whole thing was like, look how vibrant our colors are, Uh you know? And he was like, make it less vibrant. Gotcha. But they did it. That's fair. When director John Houston appeared on the BBC's Desert Island Discs program in 1973, host Roy Plomley told him that this movie was a personal favorite of his. Houston replied, quote, I don't think it's one of my best films adding that 1950 censorship constraints had made it impossible to tell the story of Henri de Toulouse-Lautrec's life honestly.
2: That's interesting.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So what did you think of Moulin Rouge?
2: I really enjoyed it. Um this is one we almost had to miss because we couldn't find it anywhere and then uh Criterion Channel came in strong and delivered it to us, which is awesome. Um but yeah, I actually really enjoyed it. And it's funny that John, you said that about John Hewson, because I actually think this movie gets away with a lot. And it does. W- Whereas things are maybe not obvious. It's always interesting how movies of the era um, kind of use the censorship to their advantage. And a lot of things are more subtle or a lot of innuendo uh, going on. Um, but yeah, from the, from the opening number inside the Moulin Rouge, where it's just like, what are we getting here? Um, to the more, like, intimate, depressing spiral downwards of our of our character, Henri, sorry. <laughs> Henri, uh, t- well, I forget his name already. Toulouse-the-Trek. Toulouse-the-Trek, yeah, Toulouse-the-Trek. Um, yeah, I just thought it was, like, a kind of a bold move and definitely a turn um, compared to, you know, a lot of these Best Picture nominees um, as far as just kind of based in in the real world every day i mean i want to say that because i can't speak for france but it just felt like you know this is a world that many people actually live in whereas like you watch a lot of these movies and and, and to, to many degrees including this season uh they're fantasy worlds to a degree right mm-hmm. They're they're idealistic um and this just felt very rooted and very real uh and yeah, I thought the script was tight. I thought the performances were good. I mean, the the body double you mentioned is is quite laughable in some instances. But like we were discussing, like how else could you do it? You know? Yeah. Um, to be truthful, uh, about the scenario. So I think they, I think they did a really respectable and nice job considering. Um, but my biggest plus for this movie is the way it looks. I don't think I've seen a movie from this decade. Uh. The 1950s or prior where it's just it's shot so like differently and like not grand traditional hollywood style like i already feel like it was kind of betraying those kind of uh tropes um this early on in 1952 uh i yeah i really admired um the way it shot. i meant to write down the cinematographer's name and i did not
1: oswald morris well Os- there were two there was one that got who started and then got fired and then there was a second one
2: oh that's interesting okay um. Well, the looks seem consistent throughout, but yeah, I just, you know, I just really appreciate it from like, yeah, the grand scenes that take place in the Moulin Rouge to the the darker, uh, grimier scenes that take place in, you know, Paris night and uh, Toulouse-Lautrec's apartment. Um, Yeah, I was really surprised by this movie and rather enjoyed it.
0: It's
1: so crazy to me. Like, I know you. And I love you, and so it should make sense to me. The fact that you can watch something as sad as this movie and then be like, "I enjoyed it," <laughs> just always astonishes me.
0: <laughs> but, Why?
1: Well, I mean, like I can say, like I appreciated this movie. Mm-hmm. I like, I liked the things about it. I couldn't say I enjoyed it because I just think it's like w- really sad for me. But
2: isn't that like a tell too that it's like it's like a not it's not a war movie. Mm-hmm. It's American from the 1950s and it's depressing as hell i feel like we don't get to say that a lot on this show It's
1: very true and especially like this this crop of best picture nominees um is it leans a lot heavier towards you know that 50s kind of trope of like bright colors and fun and like you know light fair so this does stand out in that regard and i i think I also think it feels more modern in that way, too. And I think that it feels a little more modern, too, again, because the technicolor isn't as, like, bright as it is for some other things. Like, I think sometimes, like, you look at something like Ivanhoe and, like, I'll get to that we're talking about. But it's always going to look more dated because the colors are just not colors that you see in movies anymore. But they were, like, so excited about color movies and using technicolor and, like, sure. everything else. that they were, like, look at this and look at all these colors. Whereas this was going for, like, a real... Like, it really did look like the palettes from the posters that he did for the Moulin Rouge and that sort of thing. And I also think the attention to detail, which, um, I mean, if you're familiar with toulouse Trek's paintings, even if you're not, because they show them, like, a million times within the movie. Um, but you can pick out different, like, characters within the movie are wearing, like, costumes that are recognizable from his paintings. So you can be like, oh, you know, that's recognizable from that poster. That's recognizable from that, you know, weird prosthetics that don't look so good in the remastered version that clearly like look like the poster picture but um I just think that there is it's like a heightened level of like you know I think we talked about this in a previous episode too that sometimes in the studio system era there wasn't a focus on it was a focus on creating entertainment not creating art and I think that this is leans heavier towards art than entertainment
2: yeah i absolutely agree it's kind of it's kind of sad to hear that john houston doesn't consider this amongst his best work because i truly think it is a big swing and a hit like um i don't know man i i I, yeah i just really appreciated it for sure Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah no that's i didn't actually know that stuff about the detail you're more familiar with his art than i am but that's a really nice touch honestly
1: yeah, it is. It's very impressive. And I do think, you know, like, yes, there were things that they couldn't get into because of the the uh, Hayes code and whatnot. But I do think they did get away with a lot. I mean, like, he has a full on relationship with a sex worker, which I mean, they don't which is like clear to me. Like, it's yeah. not like they try to cover that up in any way, yeah. you know. And
2: shout out to uh, Suzanne F- Flan, who uh, who played that sex worker. She her performance is is wild to say the least like i don't know how you direct something like that yeah Or if you just don't like i don't know if that's from like a lack of direction or from just like a that was a choice i don't know but she, her performance is just insane
1: yeah the woman who played her um she was a like a prima ballerina and this was like one of her first acting roles. oh that's interesting yeah yeah and I think she was she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, I believe. So Gotcha. Which yeah, I mean I think the Was I not she wrong, gave,
2: was I wrong? Is it not Suzanne Fuan?
1: I don't think that's her name, but
2: Oh man, I'm messing that up then. What was her name in the movie?
1: Marie Chalet. Or something like oh, that. Oh
2: yeah, I'm looking at the wrong name. Something
1: though. Marchand.
2: I'm sorry. Yeah. Oops, my bad. Um but yeah, her. She did great.
1: She did. She did a very good job and it is it's an interest. I think that even like the focus on uh alcoholism with her and with uh to lose track is like really interesting too to look at from a 50s perspective which I don't think for you see sure. a lot of yeah what I was think interesting weird little mini trend in the movie from series that like there was a there's like lines in this film about like killing the thing that you love because he feels like he was responsible somewhat responsible for the downfall of the Moulin Rouge And uh, and that comes that comes up in another Best Picture nominee, which is weird. What? (laughs) The greatest show on earth.
2: Oh, does it? Mm Mhm. Wait, what are you talking about?
1: Okay, we'll we'll talk about it when we get there. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) You want to hear some what other people thought about *Moulin Rouge*? Yes. All right. Has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of ninety percent, and a critic score of seventy eight percent. There is no critics' consensus at this time at the box office it made nine million dollars and it was nominated for seven oscars and won two for art direction and costume design it has not been named to any notable lists
2: next the quiet the quiet man
1: <laughs> I, thought, I thought you were whispering it I just, out, I just, oh, oh dang dang
2: <laughs> the quiet uh, see it's too late <laughs> the quiet man All right. The Quiet Man, directed by John Ford, written by Frank S. Nugent, based on the story by Maurice Walsh. Action, excitement, romance, fill the screen. An American man returns to the village of his birth in Ireland, where he finds love and conflict. Devin, give us some facts about The Quiet Man, will you?
1: All right. So as you said, it was based on a short story. Ford read that story in 1933 and soon purchased the rights for it for $10. The story's author was paid another $2,500 when Republic bought the idea, and he received a final payment of $3,750 when the film was actually made. Republic Pictures agreed to finance the film with O'Hara and Wayne starring and Ford directing, but only if all three agreed to first film a Western with Republic. They did, and after completing Rio Grande, they headed for Ireland to start shooting. Rio Grande it's probably yeah what it's called okay <laughs> uh one of the conditions that Republic placed on Ford was that the film run under two hours however the finished picture was two hours and nine minutes when screening the film for Republic executives Ford stopped the film at approximately two hours in on the verge of the climactic fist fight Republic executives relented and allowed the film to run at its full length when Maureen O'Hara died in October of 2015, her family stated she listened to music from The Quiet Man during her final hours. Yeah. Filmmaker George A. Romero was also said to have died listening to this score.
2: Really? Mm-hmm. I'm going to not listen to that score again.
1: <laughs> I mean, they, like, I think they like chose that. <laughs> I don't think it was like they were listening to it, and I'm like, boom.
2: Oh, okay. <laughs> Uh, so what did you think of the movie, Devin?
1: Okay. I thought it was in- insane. First of all, when I hear that we're watching a movie called The Quiet Man, directed by John Ford, starring John Wayne. Yeah. I was not expecting a romantic wacky comedy set in Ireland. Sure. Not my first thought for any of those people. Yes. But that is what this is. Um and it's 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 insane. Like I literally don't understand what this movie is i don't understand why these people agreed I mean, to make it
2: like like i told you i we were watching it it is the modern like it like this is what adam sandler does now
1: right they he just wanted to go hang on ireland yeah
2: they wanted to go hang on Ireland, shoot an <laughs> island and have fun and that's what they did
1: that is what they did and i mean i hope they had fun making it it's john wayne is a very specific actor with very specific skills.
2: I do want to be clear that they they make the genius choice of saying he moved from Ireland when he was very, very young. Yeah,
1: he does not attempt an Irish so, accent. Yes.
2: Thank thank the Lord that <laughs> we don't have John his Wayne Swedish doing.
0: Accent. It? <laughs> I'm
1: very glad he didn't
2: attempt an Irish. I'm Olaf. Uh, <laughs> ha, ha, ha.
1: I'll have a Yin your beer. Yeah,
2: I'll have a Yin your beer. Uh
1: but. Yeah, he's a very specific actor, and I don't think his wheelhouse includes, like, romantic lead. You know what I mean?
0: hmm
1: So on that level, this didn't work. This is also another trend of movies from this year and from all of 50s and all of time, is that, <laughs> like, every romantic relationship is, like, a elderly man and, like, a teenager, essentially. Is and what,
2: immediately. Love at first yes, sight. Yes, and
1: love it like... Boom!
2: Boom! Done.
1: What? For
2: you're mine now, cutie.
1: And I mean, I guess if you live in an Irish village, like a small village, your whole life, you know all the men there. You're not interested. Yeah, that's why the main thing he's got got going. Probably like sure. Yeah, this is a better option.
2: Yeah.
1: There's also it doesn't hold up well in in terms of the misogyny of it all. The like main, <laughs> the main plot point is she, they get married or whatever, and um, she wants her dowry and then her brother won't let her have it, and she it's basically she's stating what she wants. John Wayne do- couldn't care less, <laughs> does not care, does not give a damn, no, doesn't understand why she's still talking to him <laughs> about anything, and uh, and that's the real conflict of their relationship is that she's like this is what I want and he's like what. But I don't care about that.
2: Yeah. Sorry. That just in my head, though, I just remembered the best scene of this movie. Okay. So they get married. They have a fight. Their wedding night, obviously, over this dowry. Yeah. He brings her home and throws her ass on the bed. Yeah, because she's refusing to
1: sleep with him until she gets her dowry. Yeah,
2: and it breaks. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, is this an accident? Does this just happen? Whatever. And then the, the next morning, some friends come over and they see that the bed is broken. And it is just like... Like that is a good ass joke. It is good, and that again,
1: is, it's like that is crazy that I got past the censors.
2: Yes, but but what is it doing? You know, yeah, it's putting in our thoughts. It's like that whole, you know, we're sorry, watching Westering right now, and they're debating like charging people for for, for thought crimes, right? right? It's just like you can't. How do you censor that? You know what right. I mean? So so it's really yeah. I found it interesting, but then again, they made people have separate beds. I don't know. You're right. Well, You're then right. They, the thing that but, they
1: um in looking up stuff about this, the one thing that they did censor from this movie was um, basically like a reference to um, Irish independence there was at, at a toast at their wedding this is something about like national freedom and they decided that was too like controversial given the, the status of Ireland and England and whatnot so that got cut
0: mm. but yes, the but worry. the
1: joke about rough sex got in so
2: yeah <laughs> <Cool>. yeah yeah <laughs> uh, but yeah I mean if you wanted to talk more about this that's fine
1: I don't know I also in the terms of misogyny there's also like a prolonged scene where he physically drags her for five miles oh
2: yeah to a very abrupt ending by the way yeah i mean it's like a 15 minute fight sequence and then an abrupt ending yeah it's insane this, this movie is but you know what i applaud it it wacky. is a crazy wacky ending you're right it is it is and uh I mean, one thing I did certainly notice is, man, there are some there are some shots in this movie that are just like, yeah, there's some like Raging Bull inspired shots in here. Like, I would be shocked. Mm,
1: Yeah, it's very if they didn't take. Yeah, yeah, if
2: they didn't take some of those sequences, those boxing sequences of Raging Bull from this movie.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um, Like, it's 100 percent like I feel like Raging Bull is like a direct just ripped this off, honestly. However,
2: though, (laughs) needs to be stated that this movie won for best color cinematography. And like, yeah, it had like a handful of shots, sure. But dude, Moulin Rouge was not even nominated.
1: Oh wow, that's crazy! It Was not even
2: not, and I think that was like the best shot movie of anything we watched. Yeah, like it's insane. It's just Color, it's, yeah. it's beyond me. But the, yeah, there was that like a I don't know what are the what are the inner workings of how things are voted on the twenty fifth Oscar ceremonies? Like, because you just said they upset Technicolor. Yeah, does that um, then have ripple effect? throughout I'm, I'm just curious maybe i mean i don't know okay
1: i really don't know it could be i mean that i do think too speaking of the, the look of it i do think because it was filmed um the exteriors were filmed on location in ireland that does kind of help it be look a little less dated because i think a lot of what makes yeah, these movies look yeah. dated is that they're all filmed on sound stages so when you get like them out in in real you know irish pastures and whatnot it looks really good, and it looks a lot more modern than, than if yeah. they were standing it in front actually, of Was it actually... Did
2: screen. they really go to Ireland?
1: hmm Yeah, they filmed, like, yeah. exteriors and stuff in Ireland, and then they came back and they filmed, like, the interiors on sound stages. Okay, okay. And also, the the horse race scene was directed by John Wayne because John Ford got sick, and so John Wayne directed that sequence. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Because I thought that was a really good sequence.
2: Yeah. And then Because he... Wasn't the Alamo his first directorial debut, or... Yeah, but there, so was was some other, some years later.
1: there was some other John Ford, John Wayne joint where John Wayne directed part of it, though. Oh, interesting. Okay, I don't remember which one, though. Sure. We've seen a lot of these at this point.
2: Yeah, but he caught the bug from Ford, so that's yeah. cool. That's really cool. I mean, I respect their collaboration, like, for sure. I I'm mean, not saying-
1: Usually, I'm not going to- I don't know if I'll count this one in. Their, I'm not like, saying it's always like, the
2: best choice, but it's just like, I like the fact that they enjoy working together
1: sure they're friends like, yeah although i still think one of the most baller movies. What, what was that movie that he made like right after the war like about the or wasn't he i don't know he made a movie right after the war and he put in the credits john ford put every every actor like their rank when they were in the military oh, in World yeah, war II yeah. before their name and then he just put like john wayne because john wayne didn't serve yeah and i was like such a fuck you but they still were friends for like sure. you know decades after that oh, yeah, but what like what
2: was that that was uh it was like a longer time whatever doesn't matter uh we'll just file this movie with that one in our uh yeah in our minds so uh yeah the quiet man
1: you want to know what other people thought about it
2: can you really st- can you just stop asking me that question no just jump right into it
1: has a rotten tomatoes audience score of 91 percent and a critic score of 91 percent. audiences and critics agree <laughs> The Critics' Consensus reads... Did you write that down? No. Okay. It just felt, came it off it the fell, dome. Oh,
2: yeah. Okay. It felt like it was written down. <laughs> you, like, put an asterisk <laughs> next to it. The key says, really proud of this.
1: <laughs> I think that was a good joke. The Critics' Consensus reads, Director John Ford and star John Wayne depart the Western for the Irish countryside, and the result is a beautifully photographed, often comedic romance. That's not even a consensus. That's just, like, a... <laughs> synopsis sure the critics are like we can't even talk about what this is but it looks nice okay um at the box office it made 3.8 million dollars but that includes rentals i get the information i get i don't know (laughs) (laughs) um at the oscars it was nominated for seven awards and it won two best director and best cinematography color as far as his, as far as its legacy, in 2013, the film was selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry by the Library of Congress for being culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant. What's well, been a
2: slow year? What the hell is that?
1: Yeah, I wouldn't call it culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. <laughs> so, <laughs> what was that last word? <laughs> aesthetically. Yeah,
2: I don't think so either.
1: But who am I? I don't I work don't for the Library of Congress.
2: All right, next movie, right? Mm-hmm. Ivanhoe. Directed by Richard Thorpe. Is that not the next one? Yeah, no. But- oh, sorry. You just kind of looked like I'm throwing you off. Oh, no. I know. Uh, directed by Richard Thorpe. Uh, Noel, Noel, written by Noel Langley, Aeneas McKenzie, and Marguerite Roberts, who was originally uncredited. Probably because she's a woman.
1: I have facts about that.
2: Ooh. Was that right?
1: No. Damn.
2: <laughs> <laughs> At last on the screen, biggest spectacle since Quo Vadis. That's 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 their their tagline? Yep, that's their tagline. I'm assuming same studio.
1: (laughs) Probably. MGM, in case you're wondering.
2: Yeah. Uh, Sir Walter Scott's classic story of the... I'm going to start that over because I read coronavirus in my head for this next word. (laughs) and That's just where we're at, okay? Sir Walter Scott's classic story of the chivalrous (laughs) Ivanhoe, who joins with Robin of Loxley in the fight against Prince John and the return of King Richard the Lionheart. Tid. Lionhearted? Lionhearted. That's not what Letterboxd said.
1: Well, Letterbox is wrong.
2: Mm, or maybe you're wrong. Okay. We'll never know. There's no way to know. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about the movie, Devin.
1: Well, I only have one fact about it. Oh. Apparently. Uh, <laughs> it's about Marguerite? <laughs> it is. Oh. So as you said, she was one of the writers. In 1951, the year of production, the main screenwriter Marguerite Roberts was blacklisted by the House Un-American Activities Ooh, Committee. Okay. And MGM received permission from the Screenwriters Guild to remove her credit from the film. It would take nine years before she was able to work in Hollywood again.
2: Damn. Yes. That's really crazy. Oh, that was such a good story. I'm glad I included that. Yeah. Set you up for the for that uh, knockout. You did. Um, Devin. First question. Yes. <laughs> I might have missed more of this movie than I realized. Okay, because I'm I'm seeing names in this cast list like uh, mm-hmm. Robin Hood and Friar Tuck. I'm wondering yeah. when they came into play.
1: I, you know, I don't. I watched all of this. I was conscious for this whole movie, and yeah. I can't say that I knew those were characters in this film. I assume they were like part of the bandit of of woods people with the arrows probably
2: gotcha oh oh yeah like they were yeah
1: i would assume that maybe like you like know that was
2: robin and friar tuck
1: yeah which that makes, makes
2: sense now aesthetically how they look
1: yeah picturing them now ah, that makes
2: sense. i saw that yeah. Full disclosure, guys, I was very sick. So I was just kind of in and out of consciousness is what Devin was saying. But I'm doing a lot That's better now.
1: not true. But <laughs> you're right, Devin. I was just simply tired. He was just incredibly bored by Ivan. Uh,
2: yeah, it happens. Um, but yeah, it's a movie. It made me want to go to medieval times. <laughs> All right. Next. What? <laughs> What the audience think, Devin? No, I'm
1: just <laughs> we don't even know anything to say about it. <laughs> okay. Uh, is is that all you had to say about it? Uh,
2: you know, Devin, I don't really have a lot to add. Um, yeah.
1: I think. Um, okay, so a couple things. One, I think that this season of Best Picture nominees is wild. Weak. <laughs> <laughs> But I also think that <laughs> in the in the 40s and 50s, like during the, the peak of the studio era, I think that there was a tendency to nominate films that did well at the box office. Sure. And this film did do well. In Where the box
2: was office. the Cinerama? <laughs> I don't know.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm sad we didn't get to watch success. that. <laughs> Maybe oh, yeah. we can. We'll pick that for a supplemental. Yeah. But um, so I think that those are some things going into it because Mm. I don't this movie is not something that I would be like oh yes best picture quality it was fun like I could see no Devin it was not well
2: it was a movie that was 20 years behind when it should have come out
1: okay but a lot of people like look at CBS lots of people like to watch things that are 20 years out of date because it's comforting to them
2: you just attacked like every (laughs) single one of our listeners
1: (laughs) edit that out but (laughs) no but you know what i mean like people it was an adventure movie i i do get it i understand you know whatever it it,
2: it almost like it probably we look at it through because it was like how old are we it's 70 years old at this point 70-ish years
1: i'm not gonna do math
2: yeah ish um it might have been nice for them to see like oh it's like a throwback you know what i mean
1: I don't think like, it was that much of a throwback. Like, throwback to what? To,
2: like, when they used to make movies like that. Like, they more made movies, movies like that in like
1: 1953. Oh, next year? This year. Well, we're in
2: 1952, Devin. Whatever.
1: But, like, I think the 50s were ripe with just, like, good, clean fun. You know what I mean? Like,
2: post-war. Right. Yeah, yeah. Okay.
1: I think that was a big... Like, exactly. Like, in the early 50s, we're talking post-war. We're talking people just wanted to, like, have Watch some fun. Ivanhoe? I mean, yes, it was one of the top grossing films of the year. People loved it. I also, I mean, like Elizabeth Taylor, I'll watch do anything. Honestly, I mean so. that's fair.
2: You know what? I yeah, I'm being too maybe hard on this movie. I it think you're was looking fine.
1: too much at it from 2020, and I think from like it does not hold up. Like it does not. It's not like someone from 2020 be like, I love Ivanhoe no. because it's it's not good but no I can see where audiences in 1952 would be like that was a fun time
2: no for sure and you're right I think I think seeing uh, Elizabeth Taylor is a gem mm-hmm. I think some of the relationships within the movie are, are fun and cute the fight scenes are like how did you describe it? Like kids playing.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was like, "There's no fight like, choreography. They're no. literally just waving swords around. You can tell the swords are fake as hell because they're not like." It's
2: like yeah, it's they like, don't a, have the weight. It's like of everyone's sword. first like, like LARP game, like it's just it's insane. It's
1: yeah, like the the fight like with you know, with actors like when it's Ivanhoe versus whatever, like those are choreographed. You can tell yeah. that's like a choreographed fight. But like when it's just like a battle scene, it's literally just like they're just waving swords around
2: yeah clearly
1: fake swords so sure and it looks really dumb but the whole thing looks dumb i think that like the this is what i'm saying with like the technical or the costumes are all like so like garishly bright that it just looks it looks like kids dressing up because there's no like i don't know there's no i don't know what i'm trying to say the taste level in the costumes is just like childlike to me because it's all just like really bright colors. There's in solid yeah, colors like, and just it's like. It's like cartoony to a degree. Yeah. yeah. But I also, I think this is, there was, I think later Ivanhoe did get turned into like a comic book or something. So. What? Like, like yeah. Because it was like an old story or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I get it. It's like that's the whole vibe of it. Cool. Okay. It was too long for what it was, also. Should have been like an hour. How long was it? I don't know, like two hours. Okay.
2: (laughs) (laughs) All right, Devin, what do the critics think about Ivanhoe?
1: I don't know, but the Rotten Tomato audience score is 64%. The critics score is 81%.
2: Do you always go audience first?
1: I do, but there's no critics consensus at this time. Okay. At the box office, it made $10.8 million. It was MGM's biggest earner for 1952 and one of the top four moneymakers of the year. It was also the fourth most popular film in England in 1952. It was nominated for three Oscars and won zero. Ooh. And it has not been named to any notable lists.
2: I can imagine. Yeah. Movies that star Robin Hood and you didn't even know.
0: Secret <laughs> Robin Hood cameo. <laughs> uh,
2: now next
1: movie? I just feel like if oh. Robin Hood is in it, no. they should be like, hey, Robin Hood. Yeah. I re- I feel like they never I don't, did that. Like,
2: in the synopsis, it says Robin Loxley. That's... That's Robin Hood.
1: Is that his last name? Yeah. Why does he go by Robin Hood?
2: Cause he wears a hood when he's not being Robin of Locks. You know what I'm saying? They so like, didn't
1: even change his first name. That's no, s- they okay. Robin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, do you mean Robin Hood? No, not that. No, no not that Robin. I'm not that Robin. I'm different, different Robin. Different Robin for sure. All right, high noon. <laughs> Directed by Fred Zinneman, written by Carl Foreman, based on the magazine article, The Tin Star by John W. Cunningham. Did you just nod? Did you just nod at me?
1: Who would have known that? (laughs) You don't have
2: to. I don't care. Like, I feel like you also did the research and you like, read And you're just like, oh, he got that right. Okay, good for him. That's that's what you just did. You're like fact checking me. You're waiting for me to mess up so you can jump on and be like, welcome to The Devin Show. Let's talk Oscar movies. Alright, the story of a man who is too proud to run.
1: <laughs> is that the synopsis or the tagline? It's the tagline, well, that's Devin.
2: <laughs> it's a spoiler?
1: I don't know, like kinda. Not, well, I guess. What? It's like the
2: first five minutes he's like, I'm gonna take care of this.
1: <laughs> but there's other moments in the movie where he's like, Should I run? I guess I won't. Oh.
2: <laughs> yeah, I was really on edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> Will Kane, the sheriff of a small town in New Mexico, didn't know it was in New Mexico, so that was that was new to me. I could I didn't know where this town was.
1: No, I didn't. Anyway, know.
2: Will Kane, the sheriff of a small town in New Mexico, learns a notorious outlaw he put in jail has been freed and will be arriving on the noon train. Knowing the outlaw and his gang are coming to kill him, Kane is determined to stand his ground. So he gathers a posse from among the local townspeople, or tries to, rather.
1: Yeah, tries. <laughs>
2: No, that's a spoiler no
1: yeah
2: <laughs> <laughs> um yeah that's high noon Devin, what'd you think of high noon
1: i'm not gonna tell you what i thought about it. i'm gonna give you some facts oh and I got yes dang lots I of... are you forgetting the structure i know i got lots of facts about high noon okay. buckle yourself in
2: Oof. it's gonna be a bumpy ride <laughs> yes wait is it a bumpy night i try to do the opposite one Which will... never
1: mind bumpy ride is the line dang okay in 1951, during production of the film, Carl Foreman, the screenwriter, was called before the House and American Activities Committee during its investigation of communist propaganda and influence in the Hollywood motion picture industry. Foreman had once been a member of the Communist Party, but he declined to identify fellow members or anyone he suspected of current membership. As a result, he was labeled an, quote, uncooperative witness by the committee, making him vulnerable to blacklisting. After his refusal to name names was made public Foreman's production partner Stanley Kramer demanded an immediate dissolution of their partnership as a signatory to the production loan Foreman remained with the high noon project but before the film's release he sold his partnership share to Kramer and moved to Britain knowing that he would not find further work in the United States. Foreman was indeed blacklisted by the Hollywood studios due to his uncooperative witness label and additional pressures from Columbia Pictures president Harry Cohen mpa president john wayne and the los angeles times gossip columnist Hedda a hopper john wayne was originally offered the lead role in the film but turned it down because he felt that foreman's story was an obvious allegory against blacklisting which he actively supported later he
2: someone told, had to tell him that like let's be real someone had to tell his ass that and he's like oh really
1: <laughs> later he told an interviewer yes
2: i'll go to ireland
1: he told an interviewer, "I'm
2: not okay. Sorry, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done."
1: He told an interviewer that he would quote, "never regret having helped run Foreman out of the country." End quote. Ironically, Cooper won an Academy Award for his performance, and since he was working in Europe at the time, he asked his longtime friend John Wayne to accept the Oscar on his behalf.
0: Hmm.
1: Uh, High Noon has been cited as a favorite movie by several U.S. presidents. Dwight Eisenhower screened the film at the White House and Bill Clinton hosted a record 17 White House screenings
2: of this movie. Yes. Damn.
1: Uh, Ronald Reagan also cited High Noon as his favorite film due to the protagonist's strong commitment to duty and the law. By contrast, John Wayne told an interviewer that he considered High Noon, quote, the most un-American thing I've ever seen in my whole life. End quote, and later teamed with director Howard Hawks to make Rio Bravo in response. I made Rio Bravo because I didn't like High Noon, Hawks explained. Neither did Duke. I didn't think a good town marshal was going to run around town like a chicken with his head cut off, asking everyone to help. And who saves him? His Quaker wife. That's not my idea of a good Western.
2: <laughs> I mean,
1: <laughs> the movie. it's kind of a
2: fair assessment, but... <laughs>
1: The movie's theme song, High Noon, as it is credited in the film, (laughs) otherwise also known by its opening lyric, Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, became a major hit on the country western radio. Its popularity set a precedent for theme songs that were featured in many subsequent western films. Katie Gerardo won a Golden Globe. This is a lot of facts. I told you it was a lot of facts.
2: Okay, but they're they're not all great. Stop
1: interrupting me. Okay, sorry. Katie Gerardo won a Golden Globe Award for Best Supporting Actress for her role as Helen Ramirez, and she was the first Mexican actress to receive the award. In 1989, 22-year-old Polish graphic designer Thomas Snarky transformed a Sh- <laughs> I don't know, 1959 Polish variant of the High Noon poster into a Solidarity election poster for the first partially free elections in communist Poland.
2: That's pretty cool. And
1: they're really cool posters. You should Google all that. That's but, an,
2: that's really interesting. Yeah. Hey, I want to know. T- I want to know a couple things. Yeah. When the writer left the U.S., did he go work in in the U.K.? Like, did he get work there?
1: Um, I don't know. I didn't say. Okay,
2: and um, then what was Gary Cooper shooting in Europe at the time of his Oscar?
1: I have no idea what he was shooting in Europe.
2: Was he okay? You know what? I don't even want to say it. Never mind. Why would you think you? No, 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 I don't. I don't want to say it. Okay. I'm gonna look it up first. So, Devin, what did you think of High Noon? Did, did, you, did your opinion differ from John Wayne?
1: <laughs> My opinion differs from John Wayne's in Probably All Matters, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I can't think about anything me and John Wayne would agree on.
2: Sure.
1: Um, no, I liked High Noon. And as longtime listeners of this podcast will know, I do not like Westerns. But I think that this film is kind of an interesting take on the Western. It doesn't have a lot of those Western tropes, which is probably why, you know, John Wayne and Howard Hoxley like, didn't like it or whatever, and maybe other people. But... I think it does something interesting. I think that, um, you know, watching it, I didn't know that it was specifically an allegory for blacklisting. It's the kind of story that can be overlaid over anything. You know what I mean? It's one man standing up for what's right and like no one else wanting to do it in the way that if no one stands up, evil can run amok.
2: Yeah, it's Star Wars. (laughs)
1: It's Star Wars. It's, you know, the Trump administration. It's just like a lot of things.
2: Okay. You cannot put Star Wars and the Trump administration. Well, I mean, it's evil.
1: And people, if people don't stand up to evil, then evil triumphs. Right. And sometimes all it takes is one, one Marshall and his Quaker wife to set things right. You know? Yes. But they have to be the people willing to risk their lives to do it. And so I do think that's a very classic story. Um. Well told. I liked the, what's the word I'm looking for? Not like gimmick, but like the.
2: Oh, of the train tracks, or what?
1: No, the fact that it's oh like the device real time, yeah, the device, de-
2: yeah.
1: The fact that it's real time, I think, is really interesting because it it does have a much slower pace than, you know, usually westerns have a lot of like horses running and yeah. shootouts, which there is a shootout at the end, but
2: big scores like
1: right. This was such a this was a smaller, quieter film, but it was. It was interesting. Yeah. In
2: fact, are there any landscape like really? You know what I mean? Yeah. We're we're missing that. It's all about this small town. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, though.
1: Oh, no, no, no. It's pretty much all I thought. Um, also, this is like Grace Kelly's like breakout role. She basically she was in a play and the director saw her and cast her in this. And then she became a giant star. Yeah. And she I will say like this movie is very grounded. Like Gary Cooper chose. To not wear any makeup for the film because he wanted his age to really show because it would show like the the stress that he's under and like the the weight that this is having on him. But when you have like you know an unmade up Gary Cooper and then a lot of like normal looking people in the movie and then you have like twenty one year old Grace Kelly, it does kind of like p- it pulled me out of it for a minute because I'm like she doesn't look like anything but a movie star, so like sure it doesn't gel with the rest of this, but
2: yeah. But her contract said uh, she's definitely wearing makeup.
1: <laughs> I mean, I think you could not put her in makeup and she'd still be beautiful. So,
2: <laughs> sure. Um. Yeah. I mean. I. Yeah. I also like. I really enjoyed this. I. I think too. It's like. Yeah. It's. It's hard to see the. Alleg- I mean. I understand the allegory, but. Yeah. It's the classic story, like you just said, and done really well, and. The device, the countdown, knowing that there's a certain time when shit's gonna go down, and it's forever lingering in the background, is such a good device. I love when that's used. Mm-hmm. Um, whole, it's like a long version of Hitchcock's, you know, bomb under bomb in the briefcase type of, you know, scene. Um, we're just waiting for the events, and what I really love, it keeps cutting to them, the, the returning criminals, uh, gang waiting at the train stop and there's just this shot this long shot down the tracks that's just like you're just what you're looking you're waiting for that train to round the corner Mm -hmm. it just keeps cutting the shot like i want to say four or five times um before finally revealing the train uh yeah i just think it's used really well i actually yeah i loved the opening song it just it was like it was so anti-western without being like anti-western i guess you know what i mean like it didn't feel like it was an attack on Westerns necessarily. It just it was doing something different that a lot of them were doing, you know, and mm-hmm. um, it wasn't even going like widescreen aspect ratio, which it could have at the time. You know, it wasn't, you know, doing these big wild landscapes or anything like that. It just felt very, yeah, like you said, grounded um, from not only Gary Cooper, but, but the, the standpoint of the entire film, really, and just had these realistic feeling townspeople. And debating whether, you know, they want to get involved or not. Because that is a real, you know... In some movies, they would all volunteer and the town would be saved.
1: Yeah. And it's it's interesting, too, because I feel like it Like, I think the movie obviously comes down on the side of, like, it's better to stand up to evil than to let it run rampant. Yeah. But w- when the individual people are talking about why they're not going to do it, you're also like, well, that makes sense why you don't want to risk your life. You know what I mean? Like, from an individual perspective... Yeah, sure.
2: they're given the choice.
1: Right. And
2: now, yeah. So
1: And I I th- I don't know, I just think it's an interesting it's an interesting story. It's a classic story, but it's I mean it's classic for a reason because it's it's interesting, it raises questions. It's Gary Cooper gives a great performance, an Oscar winning performance, so
2: Yeah. Um I mean it's a classic for a reason. It took us till now to finally get around to watching it, but mm-hmm. it was definitely good.
1: I was gonna say I talked about Katie Drado winning the Golden Globe first to Mexico. Yeah, yeah actress her character is one of the most badass bitches i've ever seen in in this era of hollywood like it's so true she was amazing
2: she was i honestly wasn't thinking about her for a second because grace kelly just honestly bored the hell out of me throughout this movie sure and grace kelly's in a lot of her scenes so um i did forget about her for a second but yes it's the way she just handled men was perfect for that time or you know Mm-hmm. It was just nice to see.
1: It was really nice to see. Because, I mean, you don't... I mean, she's she's a strong... Like, a strong female character in a 1952 movie is few and far between. I mean, she's, you know... Yeah. A business owner. She yeah. was... oh And then
2: she's on to the next thing. Like, it's not... Right. And she's like, I'm I don't nothing for it. her. Yeah. She's like, I was successful here. I'm successful at the next place. I'm right. not worried. Let's go.
1: Not taking nothing from nobody. And I will say, to your point, Grace Kelly is kind of boring in this movie. I think that this role doesn't really play to her strengths i think like she does like in later work she she excels but
2: i mean i don't think this role would have played to anybody's strengths
1: no i mean it's literally just like a wife role exactly she just has to be a concerned wife but i made her a star so amen because i feel like people saw her on the screen and were like well that's one of the most beautiful people i've ever seen in my entire life let's put her in everything i don't
2: know if it's just because gary cooper's not wearing (laughs) makeup but she's hot
1: (laughs) (laughs) all right so high noon has a rotten tomato audience score of 89 percent and a critic score of 87 percent. the critics consensus reads a classic of the western genre that broke with many of the traditions of the time high noon endures in no small part thanks to gary cooper's defiant oscar-winning performance at the box office to made 12 million dollars i'm assuming that includes um later re-releases because that's um, higher than some of the movies that were in the top 10 and it wasn't in the top 10. But, um, at the Oscars, it was nominated for seven Oscars and it won four best actor for Gary Cooper, editing score and song. Mm -hmm. Um, as far as its legacy, it's got one (laughs) (laughs) on the American film Institute's original list of the 100 greatest films. It ranked at number 33 on their anniversary list. 10 years later, it ranked at number 27 On their list of 100 thrills, it ranked at number 20. On their lists of heroes and villains, Will Kane ranked the number five hero. On their list of 100 songs, the uh, theme song ranked at number 25. On their list of the greatest scores, it ranked at number 10. On their list of 100 cheers, it ranked at number 27. it's ranked. And on their 10 top 10, it ranked as the number two western.
2: Have they ever updated their lists?
1: No, just like the anniversary list was an update to the original list. And when
2: though? When was that?
1: Like a long time ago. I think at least like ten years. Okay. Since the anniversary list. Um, and High Noon was selected by the Library of Congress as one of the first twenty-five films for preservation Boom. in the United States Boom. National Film Registry.
2: Boom! It didn't just slip in there when.
1: Uh, <laughs> when they were just letting anything the, in, like the, the, the quiet. <laughs> <out here. laughs> Maybe they were like, look, we have all the other movies that John Ford won for Best Director. I guess we should put this in, too.
2: Everyone's like... They're like, have you seen him? No, okay, yeah. I heard of it. <laughs> Probably Western. Sounds good. No Okay. Western, but a quiet guy. <laughs> Must have had his tongue cut out by the savages, is what I'm thinking.
1: Also, at some point, he wasn't quiet. No. I don't know what that title Yeah, means. you're right.
2: That title makes zero sense. Anyway... Are you ready to talk about the best picture, Devin? Winner uh, of nineteen? I thought we just did.
1: Oh. What? I'm just kidding. It was a joke. Let's talk about the Oscar winner, yes.
2: Okay. <laughs> the Greatest Show on Earth. Directed by Cecil B. De- <laughs> uh. <clears throat> the Greatest Show on Earth. Directed by Cecil B. DeMille. Frederick M. Frank is a dude i am okay Whew, just let me just take a breath okay
1: all right take your time
2: the greatest show on earth directed by cecil b demille written by frederick m frank barry linden and theodore saint john the heartbeat story of circus people filmed with the cooperation of ringling brothers and barnum and bailey circus it's
1: a long tagline yes
2: it is <laughs> it's also the only one that exists I, I was like that's not right but you know it is it's
1: like half the poster it is
2: it's there yeah uh, to ensure a full profitable season, circus manager Brad Braden engages the Great Sebastian, though his moves though this moves his girlfriend Holly from her hard-won center trapeze spot. This is a lot to take on. You're like, "What are you talking about?" Holly and Sebastian begin a dangerous one-upmanship duel in the ring while he pursues her on the ground.
1: Yes that is one of the plot lines of that movie
2: yeah i just you know it was it's about the circus okay it's about the circus
1: it's literally yeah there's not a lot there actually like is a lot of plot for no reason but like yeah there's also not a lot of plot
2: charlton heston's in it
1: that's all you need to know and jimmy stewart never not in clown makeup
2: yeah tell us about this movie Don.
1: i will um, there are a number of unbuilt cameo appearances, mostly in the circus audience, including Bob Hope and Bing Crosby, and then a bunch of other people, and I didn't know who they were, so I didn't list them all.
2: But they were probably famous for the time.
1: Yeah. I did you notice Bob Hope or Bing Crosby?
2: Devin? No.
1: I didn't either. But
2: I wonder if they came at a certain time.
1: I did think that they kept lingering on people in the audience, and I'm like, I don't know why you keep showing these people, but I guess it's because they were famous.
2: Maybe you're right. <laughs> cheers in a theater in 1952
1: right all right betty hutton and cornell wilde had to learn how to fly on the trapeze for their scenes it has been said that wilde had difficulty with this because he was afraid of heights however hutton took to the trapeze like a duck to water and became quite proficient with the single bar
2: she later left hollywood to join
1: <laughs> uh, on its release bosley crowther crowther and the new york times called the greatest show on earth quote a lusty triumph of circus showmanship and movie skill and a piece of entertainment that will delight movie audiences for years. Mm. Disagree, Bosley. In 1999, critic Leonard Moulton opined that quote, like most of DeMille's movies, this may not be art, but it's hugely enjoyable. (laughs) Some reviewers consider the greatest show on earth among the worst choices the Academy ever made for best picture. In 2005, Empire listed it as the third worst Best Picture winner. The following year, in an article for MSNBC about the 78th Academy Award selection of Crash as Best Picture, Eric Lundergaard called Crash the, quote, worst Best Picture winner since the dull, bloated film The Greatest Show on Earth. Damn. In 2013, the fact that The Greatest Show on Earth won over High Noon was listed by Time among the ten most controversial Best Picture races. So you might be asking, why did it win? Here's a theory. (laughs) Stanley Kramer alleged that the film's best picture Oscar was due to the political climate in Hollywood in 1952. Senator Joseph McCarthy was pursuing communists at the time, and DeMille was a conservative Republican involved with the National Committee for a Free Europe. Another likely reason The Greatest Show on Earth was voted Best Picture of 1952 was that it was seen as a, quote, last chance vote for Cecil B. DeMille to honor him for a lifetime of filmmaking dating back to the silent movie era. DeMille's best work was done before the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was created. However, many people today would agree that The Ten Commandments, DeMille's next and last film, which he produced and directed, was more deserving of the 1956 Best Picture Oscar than Around the World in 80 Days, and more deserving of an honor to DeMille's magnificent and legendary career and its contributions to the growth and evolution of the cinema than The Greatest Show on Earth. Damn. Which is why – this is when you can get into trouble when you're giving people Oscars for for not the thing you're giving them an Oscar for.
2: <laughs> sure. No, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Whew. But I do think, like um, – I do think it makes sense, given that the HUAC things were happening at this time, that a movie that's clearly about blacklisting didn't win over a movie directed by, like, a very conservative Republican. <laughs> sure. <laughs> they were like, if we vote for High Noon, we're all going to get called into. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: and dude, Joe McCarthy's breath smells like crap, so I just don't, don't want to go. <laughs> uh yeah, what a movie this was! Um, you was know it the greatest show. I <laughs> was honestly like with it for like the longest time. Yeah, like I was interested. Yeah. It was it was big and it was you know yeah. sensational and I was with, it, and then it just kept going. <laughs> there was more movie there than uh than than necessary. Truly, yes. Um, I think a lot of the circus stuff, like. You know, it was probably like seeing, obviously, the circus in the theater, right? Like, I get it. They were really highlighting certain things, but, but there was just too much of it. There was. But again, it was going for the spectacle. I get it. It's a big tentpole movie, but I'm not trying to make... Sorry. But uh, <laughs> it is... Uh, that's all it was, though. Like you said, it was just pure entertainment um, and very little movie.
0: Like, yeah.
2: You know, it's just... It was fine. It was fine. I get the spectacle, but I don't appreciate the movie.
1: Yeah. Looking at it as like a film, like, no. No. I mean, I get why audiences like it because going to the circus is fun. Seeing people perform Circus X is fun. That's why the circus has existed for forever. So I understand like that, like, oh, I get to go see the circus, but I don't have to smell animal poop. That's exciting. <laughs> And it was, it was, some of those circus acts were pretty cool to watch. Yeah. There were too many, like the whole, when we had to watch the whole parade of everybody, I'm like, I don't need to see this parade of people in their dirty, like, the thing too about this movie is that maybe in 1952, this was amazing, beautiful, spectacular, but now like, I just, it looks so dirty and gross, like all, cause it's truly the Ringley Brothers circus, like they're costumes and the performers and whatnot and there was just so like there wasn't that opulence that i think if we made a movie today about the circus well you look at like the greatest showman which is about the circus right and like those costumes are like gorgeous and there's you know the lighting is all perfect and blah 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 and it's you know highly edited and whatnot but like this literally felt like you were sitting in a humid (laughs) tent smelling poop and people you know what I mean? It was just like there was just like a grossness factor to it that I was like, oh yeah,
2: it was shot at the actual circus, right? Like right circus, yeah.
1: And the actual circus is gross, so I get that. Yeah, but like, there was no like movie magic no. to make the circus look spectacular. it,
2: it is odd too because you're saying that's like it's like going to the circus or whatever, but like it's such just promotional material for the circus. Oh, like 100%. It kind of leaves you with a bad taste in mouth. In fact, when you're not seeing circus elements, the big se- the big sellers, right? You're finding out how much work it takes to put on the circus.
1: Right. And that was, literally felt like those things they used to play like before movies, like propaganda, like newsreel yeah, footage. 100%, that, yeah. A hundred
2: percent, dude. It's just, it was just one big. I
1: was like, oh, it takes so many people to put a tent up.
2: <laughs> yeah. I found it interesting. I mean, interesting. <laughs> what I found it kind of cool is just like all these, they hop on like this train, you know? It's like, mm-hmm. that's kind of dope. But it's like this giant community of gypsies that basically travel the country and put on a circus yeah i mean it honestly it is kind of interesting but it's just like yeah it's like oh here's a circus this this is our movie and it's just like and then look how hard it is to do it's just like that's all the movie was about and it's just i don't know
1: yeah it was like a weird mashup of like a documentary about the circus and then cut with these like melodramatic
2: i really want to watch a documentary on the circus now
1: though. <laughs> now sure that you mentioned
2: that you put those that were in the same sentence
1: but i mean like the 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 movie part of it the like plot part of it was so melodramatic and over the top and just like not oh yeah interesting to me
2: yeah also like what kind of favor did jimmy stewart owe cecil b demille right for randomly being in this movie.
1: I don't know why Jimmy Stewart's in this movie. Like you said, I'm sure he filmed for like 2 days and then
2: he oh, was yeah, gone,
1: but 100%. why he agreed to do it I don't know. Didn't
2: don't it seem know. like cuz I also went through like the IMDb trivia for this movie? Mhm. Didn't it seem like most of the trivia was centered around Jimmy Stewart? I'm just like, you're acting like he's in more of this movie than he is.
1: I didn't read the IMDb trivia. Oh, okay. What trivia did you read? A Wikipedia.
2: Oh okay <laughs>
1: um but yeah well i mean I jimmy stewart and charleston heston are probably like the two biggest stars in the well they are the biggest stars in this.
2: yeah but from what i was reading was charleston heston even a star i don't think Charles charleston heston was a
1: star when this no. came out so
2: no he's also like he is kind of fun to watch on screen like i don't support charleston heston by any chance but no. like but he definitely does like for not i don't even know if he's acting i wouldn't call it acting <laughs> but he just certainly has a presence on the
1: screen he does I mean, same for Jimmy Stewart, honestly. I mean, he's just Jimmy Stewart and everything.
2: Nah, I don't. I didn't like him in this. I didn't.
1: It was weird. He was playing like a yeah, <laughs> a doctor who murdered his girlfriend, which they never really like explained why he murdered his wife, but a girlfriend. I feel like
2: she was sick, so he put her out of her misery type of thing.
1: Uh, they never like. They never said. It was just like, yeah, he I killed know. his wife. So then he's hiding out in the circus, which is why he never takes his makeup off. These are spoilers, by the way, but I don't care. <sighs> um. Which is just, which is, he was never also like so Stewart. clear. As soon as, like, he would never take his makeup off, I'm like, well, he's hiding from people. Like, why no one else, like, thought that, I don't know. But
2: for sure, for sure.
1: And I will say while we're talking about spoilers, there is a, a train crash scene in this movie that is one of the most impressive train crash scenes I've ever
2: seen. I would, I 100% agree. I, it's like they crashed a real train.
1: I think they had to have, but like,
2: I don't know, I think it was models, but Oh okay. It looked, But it was like six foot models. It was like big ass models.
1: It looked really good.
2: It looked so good.
1: It was shocking.
2: It was amazing.
1: And also this was obviously a time when um
2: It wasn't Oscar worthy, however.
1: No, it wasn't Oscar Worthy. But like if you're like sitting in a theater and you sit on the big screen you'd be like, damn
2: Yeah, for real.
1: Fun. And then because this was a time when, um, they didn't care about animals. They were just letting Wild animals roam around train wreckage. I was like, this can't be safe for them, but okay. But I mean, the whole circus doesn't care about animal safety. So yeah, that's a topic for another day. Uh, Yeah. So I agree with most everyone who's seen this movie that it did not, you know. (laughs) We'll get to that in a minute, I guess. Do you have anything else you want to say about it? I don't. All right. It has a Rotten Tomatoes audience score of 54% and a critic score of 42%. Whoa! Not fresh. Not fresh. (laughs) The consensus is the greatest show on earth is melodramatic, short on plot, excessively lengthy, and bogged down with the cliches, but not without a certain innocent charm. Genius and charm. This movie also got in some jokes that I'm like, how did the censors... Let that one in. Yeah, what were they? There was some joke she had about some guy making her wet, and I'm just like, I'm sorry. Oh yeah. (laughs) Which I think they were like going because like, I think saying someone gets you wet is like, oh, I'm angry, but I'm like, I don't, because like she says it, and then the other lady is like in more ways than one, and I'm like, exactly. What? (laughs) Yeah. How did the censors let that in? I don't know. Anyway. At the box because office. Because
2: apparently Oh, that was a different movie. Never mind. Never mind. Move on.
1: Okay. At the box office it made $36 million. It was the number one movie of the year and Paramount's highest grossing picture of all time.
2: Of all time? Damn.
1: Up to that point, I'm assuming. I think they've probably oh. had higher grossing pictures since then. <laughs> uh it was nominated for five Oscars and it won two for Best Picture and Best Story. Which is different from screenplay. Yeah. don't ask me how um as far as it's like there, there is a difference there's a difference but i mean they don't have that category. i wish anymore. they still did though i don't know what the difference is
2: a story is like the story like the plot the events
1: you think this movie sc- had the best story no
2: i do not <laughs> that's so true but i like the idea of it and a screenplay is like more technical you know what i mean
1: Sure. You know I mean, what? I, I don't like. I feel like, it. like the Never fact mind. that I... they don't have it anymore is because it's not necessary.
2: You're right. It should be that should be calculated into what you like about a best picture. Technically, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah.
1: Well, apparently, that's what they liked about it because it was the only two awards it won.
2: Yeah.
1: <laughs> All right. So now it's the p- part of our podcast where the the viewers are anxiously awaiting <laughs> our judgment on yeah. if the best picture winner deserved the win. What say you? me yeah no my other co-host I
2: say nay
1: (laughs) agreed this movie did not deserve like in a in a race where I think that all the movies were fairly weak this still wouldn't even rank in the top four so or I literally think it's the worst of the five honestly (laughs)
2: <laughs> I agree. I
1: don't know. Quiet Man's bad, but no, no, no.
2: no. <laughs> I think this is worse though. Quiet Man was so wacky and short.
1: At least the Quiet Man was like a movie. I feel like this was literally just like n- newsreel yeah. footage mixed with a soap opera. That's fair. Yes.
2: A lot of trains in these movies. oh uh, Not wait, a
1: lot of trains.
2: Not in *Millionaire*, but anyway.
1: No, he walked everywhere.
2: <laughs> yes, he exactly. did.
1: Uh, slowly, so, what picture slowly. do you think of the nominees do you think should have won?
2: I think the general consensus is probably that High Noon should have won.
1: Yes, I uh, agree. However, oh, oh no. What are you gonna say? Mulan Rouge Moulin takes
2: Rouge? it in my book. It does. It okay. really does. I I had more f- fun watching Moulin Christ. Rouge.
1: You had more fun watching an alcoholic man push everyone away yeah. and reject love from his life and yes. then die. Doesn't
2: that sound like fucking Oscar bait?
1: <laughs> it Sounds like Oscar bait. Doesn't sound like fun. You're using no. the word fun.
2: <laughs> Sorry. No, but I really enjoyed it. Like I respect High Noon fully, and I did. I did enjoy it for the most part. But like, you know, I don't know. I get it. But again, the story was like nothing new for me. I I just I respect the device. That's truly what I liked. Um, but I think Mulan Rouge just checked all the boxes for me as far as like what makes a great movie. So um like for instance, High Noon, I wouldn't say the performances were the greatest. Do you know what I mean? Like hmm. that wasn't sold to me truly. But I, like I really enjoyed the performances. The costumes, the cinematography, the music, like the editing with Moulin Rouge. And so for me, to me, that I just like, if I had looked at this list of movies and we had watched them and I didn't know who won, I would assume it was between like that and High Noon for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would personally pick High Noon.
1: You mean Moulin Rouge?
2: I mean Moulin Rouge, yes.
1: (laughs) All right. I would pick High Noon out of these five. I think that High Noon... Um, you know what I look for in a Best Picture winner is something, like, beyond what it is. And I think that this has sure. a has a message and a story. And maybe it's a message that's fairly obvious and fairly well done at this point. But
2: I yeah. like it. In today's world, High Noon would have won. Yes. A movie that goes against, like tyranny and fucking fascism and right anything you know that is gonna win
1: right the problem was it came out in a year when fascism was really running hollywood Yes, so. exactly
2: exactly so it, it is really interesting it's of the time and i and i and i do agree i just also like i love that like a blacklisted screenwriter wrote it but like i just don't like allegory is a very strong word in my opinion again i think it fits a mold Yeah, like I said, you can put it over anything, and you know that works. Yeah. So
1: blacklisting was just what was happening then.
2: Sure, but if like if that's the truth behind it, and you know John Wayne didn't star in it because of that, and other people stepped in like Gary Cooper and you know others, Lloyd Bridges and and Grace Kelly, mad respect that. I do, I very much do, and I think that's powerful, and I think that's awesome. Just to get, but personally, the better movie to me is moulin Rouge.
1: For sure. Well, Not to be confused with
2: Moulin Rouge.
1: <laughs> Although they, what, oh, what was the one cool fact that the Moulin Rouge from 1952 and then the Moulin Rouge from 2001, the Baz Luhrmann movie, both won the same Oscars. Really? Yeah, it was like cost. No, it wasn't costume. It was like song. No, what was it?
2: <laughs> Why didn't you write it down? It actually sounds like a pretty interesting fact.
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't remember, oh, but wow. they won the same Oscars, okay, or, or something like that,
2: or maybe they won like each one an Oscar that yeah.
1: Oh yeah, because no, it wasn't a song. Because okay,
2: we need to. All right, anyway,
1: you can Google that on your own time, <laughs> listeners. But, uh, that's our that's our episode, but um, like I said, High Noon is what I would pick from the nominees, but I actually strongly feel that a film that was not nominated should have won it's
2: gonna actually shock you guys if you're not following along um the movie that you're are you about to say it?
1: i was gonna say what movies are you are gonna watch for supplementals would you rather surprise people
2: no no i think you should say it but i'm just gonna okay. say you guys are gonna like be freaked out when you hear that this was not even nominated
1: yeah so best picture. next week we'll do our supplemental episode for this oscar race including the film singing in the rain guys that wasn't nominated for best picture it was not isn't that crazy?
2: Isn't it wild? <laughs> right. Isn't it wild?
1: So we're going to watch that. And I
2: know what you're thinking already. It should have won Best Picture, though, right. guys. We agree. Mm-hmm. Probably.
1: Well, we're going to talk about that, and we're also going to watch uh, the Vincent Minnelli picture, The Bad and the Beautiful, and uh, whatever movie you picked. Okay. I don't remember good. the name Forbidden of- Games. Forbidden Games. It's supposed to be sad, so. Woo! <laughs> we'll see you guys then. Oh, and we came in listening to the Best Song winner, Uh, The theme from High Noon called High Noon, and I I don't know any songs from this year, so I guess we'll go out listening to that.
2: Wait, no, we should we should kill everybody by listening to a song from The Quiet Man. (laughs) (laughs) All
1: right, listen to the score. Try to hold on to your lives. We'll see you next.